Welcome to Pale Blue Pod, the astronomy podcast for people who are overwhelmed by the universe but want to be its friend. It's true, um, and I'm a friend of the universe. I was just <laughs> having dinner with them the other night. Um, <laughs> I am Kring Caputo, a writer, comedian, and friend to all. To all? To everyone I've ever met. <laughs> wow, what a claim. You it's know, exhausting. I believe it. You are, you're so nice, and you are so <laughs> likable. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. I really... don't know. I don't know about the nice thing, but you are very likable. <laughs> I will say that. I do think I'm very nice. I definitely, um, probably too much so. I, well, even when I was teaching at the Space Center, I was always, like, afraid to be, like, that answer is wrong. Like, I didn't mm-hmm. have that, which you, like, need if you're a teacher. So, in that way, way too nice. Mm-hmm. I get that. I... I, who am I? I am Dr. Moya McTeer. I'm an astrophysicist uh, and a folklorist and a friend to the universe. Yes. Um, And I know that I am friend to the universe because one of the things the universe has taught me is that I am often too nice. Um, Yeah. So my, one of my resolutions actually for 2023 was to be more selfish um, because I think that's great. The universe was like, Moya... You're too much of a people pleaser. You got to stop that. And I was yeah. like, you know what, friend? You're right. It's really healthy to make some of those calls. It's so easy to say that to someone else, though. I know. It, I know. When actually in practice, it's so challenging. Mm-hmm. It is. But today we're going to be talking about someone who is also kind of universally, I'm not going to say that, who is uh, <laughs> er, earth, earth-widely beloved. Um, Many people considered him to be extremely nice, to be Mm -hmm. a very nice scientist, to be an amazing science communicator. Uh, He is the origin of this podcast's name. Mm -hmm. Today, we are talking about Carl Sagan. Yay! Yay! Um, I never met him. He he died the year after I was born. But uh, we we are talking about him and his work today from a horse barn. Yes, we are in a horse barn. Yes, we are. Uh, so the the smell of horses and hay and yeah, honestly, the manure. I I love the smell of horse poop. Um, it's oh so comforting. God. That is so. I love it as comforting to you because I think it's a scent that can easily get turn people away. Oh, for sure. Yeah, that's that's definitely the case for a lot of people. But to me, it takes me right back to some of my favorite memories from Girl Scout camp. Um, I grew up spending all of my summers at Girl Scout camp and there was a barn with a lot of horses and I, I felt cool because I was not a barn staffer, but I was friends mm-hmm. with all the barn staffers. Sure. Uh, so this is taking me right back to that. Um, and I just love being surrounded by the bustle of people um, cleaning tack and scooping hay um, and the horses they're whinnying it's so Aww. cute um, and I really hope we get to ride some horses when we're done recording yeah I, you're gonna have to walk me through that because I've ridden a horse one time and it I found it really terrifying really yeah they gave oh. me way too big a horse <laughs> oh that'll do it. it was the largest horse in the whole barn and I was like you can't do this to me so I was so what? high off the ground and I was oh. just like I was just nervous. Um, How old were you? <laughs> Twenty-seven. Like <laughs> this is recent. <laughs> I picture. I fully picture. A child? You as a no, girl. I was fully grown. <laughs> okay. All right. So um, maybe, maybe you don't ride the horse. Maybe I'll walk the, next we'll to the horse, and I'll. <laughs> mm, you can. You can 
at least like feed and yes. brush some Let of the horses. Let me just get to know it first. I, it needs to be a slower on ramp to now you're on top of the biggest horse we have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and maybe maybe we won't put you on the biggest horse. I will happily. I'm saying this to the to the barn staffers. Um, I will happily take the biggest horse you have. <laughs> I love being tall. Please please find me that that horse over there. I want I, I want love that being one. Tall. That's so funny. <laughs> I do. I never get to be as tall as I want to be in life. <laughs> Maya, I remember you as a tall person, or I think of you as a tall person, as we are in person right now. You know what, Corinne? I really appreciate you saying that. A lot of people tell me that they they think of me as a tall person. They'd say I have tall person energy. Yes. I am 5'5 five, five on a good day with my hair. Interesting. I would have guessed we were the same height. How tall are you? I'm like 5'7". Oh, we're sitting, yeah. so we can't, we're sitting. We can't see this. We can't oh. see. You'll see it when I get on the horse. Yes. We can even out on the horse. <laughs> well, you, you'll see me when I get on the horse. I'm going to be eight, nine feet tall. I'm going to be so tall. Uh, but before, before we both achieve our dream heights, today we're talking about Dr. Carl Sagan. He is uh, a celebrated astronomer, writer, speaker, communicator. Uh, there's, he did a lot. In mm-hmm. a life that was surprisingly short. Yes, I was Both surprised. of us were surprised. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, but let's let's talk about it. Let's, let's talk about his early life. Yeah. All right. So I did a bit of digging here. It's not really digging when information is so easily accessible. <laughs> <laughs> That's the nice thing about uh, doing an episode about a very famous, very famous person. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so Carl Sagan was born November 9th, 1934 in Bensonhurst mm. in Brooklyn. Nice. Um, Brooklyn, New York. He, his parents, Samuel Sagan, is an immigrant from then Russia, but today's Ukraine. Um, oh, topical. Topi- <laughs> topical man. And uh, Rachel Molly Gruber, who is from New York. That's his mother. Can I just say, uh, Samuel Sagan? Yeah. Great name. I think that's such that a good name. That should be in a comic book somewhere. I love it. Samuel Sagan. It yeah. is Carl Sagan. Is flows well, but there's something like impressive about Samuel Sagan. Agreed. Key um, Davidson is um, Carl Sagan's biographer, so some of this information is like quotes from that. Um, but Key mm. described Sagan's relationship with Sagan's parents as a kind of like quote inner war, since Sagan's mother and father were so opposite. Um, and I'm trying to, I tried to like get to the bottom of like what his dad was like, but I know his mom, um, Sagan traced his quote analytical urges to his mother who grew up, she grew up extremely poor in New York city in the 1920s. She had a lot of intellectual ambition. Um, but those ambitions, yeah. Did she have him as a teen? That's a great question. He was born in 34, but she was growing up in the twenties. So she was born 1906. Okay. Cool. Cool. Yeah. Sorry um, to derail. I just No, no worries at confused. all. So so she had intellectual ambitions but those were obviously stalled by the time period, by being a woman, by being mm. you know poor, by being mm-hmm. Jewish. So she didn't quite live out these fantasies or that she wanted. Um Aww. And Davidson, the biographer, suggests that this is why she worshipped Carl, who was her only son, and he could, like, fulfill these unlived dreams Mm -hmm. of hers, which is very sweet. I think it's a lot of pressure to put on your kid. Probably not parenting advice I would give, but um, certainly don't live through your children. Just let them be who they are. (laughs) But Mm -hmm. um, there's a quote from Carl Sagan where he says, My parents were not scientists. They knew almost nothing about science. But in introducing me simultaneously to skepticism and to wonder, 
They taught me the two uneasily cohabiting modes of thought that are central to the scientific method. Ooh, I feel like yes. he was such a good writer. Like that he they he's a great science communicator. Obviously, he's like one of the most famous ones. Um, mm-hmm. His speech is like so iconic that like the pale blue dot talk. But he's just really mm-hmm. he seems really good at getting to the bottom of information and like giving it back in a way that is understandable. Yeah. Delivering it in a in a message that will punch right to your heart. Yes, I, exactly. Uh, I, early in my science communication days, I did try really hard to emulate Sagan's style. Yeah. Um, eventually, I realized that that's, that's just not who I am. Yeah. But it's it's so good. I know exactly what you mean. There's like an emotional element to the information he's communicating that, you know, I think every great writer wants to hit do that gut punch, too. So mm-hmm. totally. So when Sagan was five, he took his first trips to the public library alone. And I was like, that's so young. But then I'm like, okay, this is Bensonhurst, New York. Like, the library probably wasn't that far and also, like, so normal to just be walking down the street. Um, So he wanted to learn what the stars were, since supposedly none of his friends or their parents could give him a clear answer. That's so cute. It really is. He says, quote, I went to the librarian and asked for a book about stars, and the answer was stunning. It was that the sun was a star, but really close, and the stars Mm. were suns, but so far away that they were just little points of light. The scale of the universe suddenly opened up to me. It was a kind of religious experience. There was magnificence to it, a grandeur, a scale which has never left me. Sweetie. Oh, yes. Such a sweetie. Okay, so... Fast forward to high school. He's not five years old anymore. He's a teen. (laughs) Um, His family moves to New Jersey, Um, this Mm. town called Rahway, which I hadn't heard of before. So it's 1948. They moved there for his dad's work. And Sagan was a straight A student, but was bored in all of his classes, which is like such a common thing for... (sighs) Relate. Yeah, especially like these large public schools, which I totally understand. But like, it's so hard to get that like precise ratio of teacher to student and like everyone gets their specialized plan. And that would be ideal, but Mm -hmm. so it goes. Sagan was bored. Um, His teachers didn't realize this and they tried to encourage his parents to send him to a private school. But his parents could not afford this. So it was Mm. he was kind of stuck. Um, Sagan became the president of the school's chemistry club. So I guess he's figuring out a way to get by. Nice. And he set up his own lab at home. He made models of molecules, did a lot of like hands-on visual representations of what was interesting to him, which I feel like probably paved the way for a lot of his communication stuff of just like breaking it down to these smaller parts for himself. Yeah, that's good insight. Yeah. Um, Wikipedia says that Sagan's junior year of high school, he discovered that astronomers get paid for doing what he loves to do, (laughs) which is so funny to me to not realize that until you're like, that's the year you turn like 16. Like, dude, you have to. I didn't I didn't know that was a thing until college. Yeah, I actually shouldn't say that because I remember the moment that I realized people write television shows and I was like, I got to do that. Like. (laughs) Actually, my first reaction was, I wish I could do that. Like, I'm not that good. And then I was like, that's psycho of me to be so mean right off. <laughs> Let me try first. Wow. I love that that you that correction you made. Yeah, it was really. Good for you. I remember it, I went to like a stand up show and they were like, I was like hanging out with like this group of like all of these white guys. And they were like, yeah, we want to mm-hmm. do stand up comedy. We want to write for TV. And I was like, oh, I wish I could do that. And looking back, I'm like, that was so weird <laughs> that I was like, I'm the one in this group who can't do this. Right. Mm. 
Anyway, um, Sagan, back to high school. So he says when he discovers that astronomers get paid, that was a splendid day when I began to suspect (laughs) that if I tried hard, I could do astronomy full time, not just part time. And I feel like that's the dream for so many, like, creatives as well, where you're just Mm. desperate to be, like, turning this art, like, into something profitable, sure, because, like, you need money to live, but just, like, just turning it into a thing where you don't have to be doing seven other jobs. You can just kind of dedicate yourself to this one passion, which I loved. Um, And he did it. Yeah. He did it. So before the end of high school, he entered an essay contest in which he explored the idea. This isn't like super necessary, but I thought it was interesting. He explored the idea that human contact with advanced life forms from other planets might be as disastrous for people on Earth as Native Americans first contact with Europeans. And I was like, yeah, that's of course that, you know, that could easily be true. Um, Mm -hmm. The subject was considered controversial. But his rhetorical skills won over the judges, and they awarded him first prize. So wow. he was always a great speaker. I would love to know exactly what part of that was controversial. Was it the idea of, of aliens existing at all? Yes. Was it that our contact with that wouldn't go well? Or was it that he was bringing up the fact that white people did not treat Native Americans well? My gut says that they didn't want to acknowledge the deep negative impacts of colonialism. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah. we maybe it was because aliens <laughs> were not real. Maybe. But we're I doubt it. Speculated. Yeah, there are a lot of things that they could have uh, taken issue yeah. with. Yeah, especially because this is like the 50s now. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, okay, so now we're in college. Sagan attended the University of Chicago, which, despite him being a straight-A student, was one of the few colleges that admitted him Moya, do you know why that might be? I think I, I think I, was he young? Yes, it's because he was only 16. 16, yeah. So only you, Chicago, was like, sure, come on in. So that means his high school, they let him, like, finish early. Yes. Okay, that's so good. So instead of that's going good. to private school, they were like, maybe you should just get out of here. <laughs> we could speed this up. I like that they did that for him. Um, when I was getting bored in my public school classes, they did not let me skip a grade for Ugh, a very long time. That stinks. Yeah. My husband was and is extremely good at math and um, got to take some, like he got to walk over to the nearby high school when he was in middle school and take some math classes, mm. which really helped him. But I'm, I'm sure that not every middle schooler is like, it, also towns are not always set up in a way where it's like, great, okay, yeah. so now you're going to leave the classroom and walk around the corner um, okay, so it's back to Sagan. Um, 16. 16, so young. Socially, I have no idea what that was like for him, but he seemed mm. to do really well academically. Um, as an honors program undergrad, he worked in the lab of geneticist H.J. Mueller, or Muller, mm. and mm-hmm. Sagan wrote a thesis on the origins of life with physical chemist Harold Urey. Sagan also joined the Ryerson Astronomical Society, and in 1954, he was awarded a bachelor's degree something he apparently proclaimed was nothing quote unquote (laughs) (laughs) wait 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 that the the bachelor's degree was nothing or that it was in nothing i he said like it was i think he referred to like the workload is what i think he was saying like earning this was nothing like but (laughs) and then in 19 a year later he got his bs in physics so i think it was the first one was like that was easy and now let, let me get the sciences one 
Oh, maybe it's something where you like you get it along the way. Because in my PhD program, I got two master's degrees along the, the way. way. Yeah, and I, I was I like I don't feel excited about those. Yeah, especially when there's yeah. this like large goal in the end. But he did go on to graduate work at the at state still at University of Chicago and earned a master's in physics in 1956. So he did mm-hmm. all this within two years, like 54, 55, 56. He got a degree, and then. 1960, he got his PhD. Yay! Yay! His PhD thesis was entitled Physical Studies of the Planets. And in 19... Well, I guess this is still in in tandem with the PhD. I just thought it was really interesting. In 1958, Sagan and Gerard Kuiper... Kuiper. Kuiper? Oh, like the Kuiper belt. Like the Kuiper belt, yes. Yeah! Kuiper. Okay, Kuiper's Sagan's dissertation director, and he's a planetary scientist as well. Together, they worked on the classified military project A-119 and the then-secret Air Force plan to detonate a nuclear warhead on the moon. The drama. The drama. That's definitely (laughs) one of the more dramatic parts of NASA's history. Um, (laughs) But it means Sagan had a top-secret clearance at the U.S. Air Force and a secret clearance with NASA while working on his doctoral dissertation. And Sagan revealed U.S. government classified titles of two Project A-119 papers when he applied for the University of California Berkeley Scholarship in 1959, Mm -hmm. essentially leaking government secrets for this application. (gasps) The leak was not publicly revealed until 1999 when it was published in the journal Nature. A follow-up letter to the journal by project leader Leonard Reifel confirmed Sagan's security leak. Isn't oh that crazy? God. He had the clearance. He leaked it. He it wasn't revealed it. that he leaked it until after he died. Oh, my yes. God. What a story. The drama, really. So this is where I leave it, taking us to post-PhD and hopefully yes. painting a picture of a smart guy who pursued education and only leaked country secrets twice. <laughs> only twice. Small thing. It's it's the third time it's that's the It's the third problem. time when it's a pattern. It takes three to be a pattern. <laughs> It's a, the the U.S. government really likes the three strikes and you're out. Exactly, cool. it's an American <laughs> classic, really. <laughs> That's where it started. Baseball stole it from yes. the the classified. Yes. Baseball uh, stole Sagan's work. Yeah, <laughs> I'll say it. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> also, the fact that he did all of that top secret stuff before he was thirty. He was he's like twenty five. Yeah, working for the space for the Air Force. Oh, you know what I'm putting together now? What? He leaked the secrets. He's a talker. He's a communicator. You can't expect him to keep it a secret. Oh, um, so later on, we're going to be talking about our favorite Carl Sagan quotes. And uh, one of the quotes I chose is is about this. So, yeah, it's he's at least consistent. And I respect yes, that about him. I respect that from day one. Mm-hmm. So I want to pick up after like at the end of grad school um, and talk about Sagan's research. Uh, so like you said, his uh, dissertation was the physical studies of planets uh, and, and their satellites, mostly the moon and Venus, a little bit of Mars. His dissertation was advised by Gerard Kuiper, uh, like you said, who did not discover the Kuiper belt. Uh, that wasn't discovered until much later or like a few decades later in the 90s, but it was named after him because he was a planetary scientist. Uh, He was also advised by physicist George Gamow, uh, who did some work in looking at the decay of particles. So he did uh, he was instrumental in a lot of the uh, nuclear research that was happening at the time. Uh, And also chemist 
Melvin Calvin, which Melvin is Melvin Calvin, a great name. Um, and so I really like that you can see in Sagan's history that he is very interdisciplinary. Um, yeah. He's not just a planetary scientist. He also did genetics research. Uh, he looked at the origin of life and the evolution of intelligence on our planet. He was a well, he knew a lot more chemistry than I do. <laughs> he did chemistry experiments. So, yeah, he was an interdisciplinary researcher, and you can definitely see that um, in the rest of his career. So after graduating from University of Chicago, he worked as a Miller Research Fellow at UC Berkeley. And now that you've said this, I'm I'm thinking that he got this essentially postdoctoral fellowship yeah. by leaking U.S. government yeah. secrets, which is badass that is bad. <laughs> you know how many people that is that must be such a hard leak to control because you're like okay who saw your application who talked to mm -hmm. who it's mm -hmm. it's hilarious it's hilarious um okay yeah so he he gets this postdoctoral fellowship by breaking the law um <laughs> and while he was at uc berkeley he was studying venus's atmosphere so this is in the 60s, the early 60s. We didn't know yet a lot about Venus. We hadn't sent telescopes to Venus and to many of the other planets in our solar system. But Carl Sagan was one of the first to study the surface temperature of Venus. And using radio waves, he determined that the surface of Venus was not warm and wet like a lot of people thought. Mm -hmm. a, a lot of people assumed that it would be kind of a tropical climate and that life might be um, possible on mm -hmm. Venus. And uh, Sagan was one of the first to find that, no, 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 the surface of Venus is like 900 degrees Fahrenheit. It is not warm and wet. It is dry and so hot that lead could melt on the surface of Venus. Whoa. It's extremely hot. Um, so he was one of the first people to find that Throughout the rest of his career, he also did a lot of work on those spacecraft missions, like uh, the Mariner flybys of both Venus and Mars, the Viking orbiters uh, and landers that were sent to Mars, and the Pioneer and Voyager missions that were sent to the outer system to explore those planets. He consulted on those missions. He was the principal investigator on uh, some of those spacecraft missions. So he... he at the beginning of his career was focused on planets, and that was a through line for the rest of it as well. Hi, it's Corinne. Welcome to this episode's mid-break. I hope you are loving Carl Sagan as much as we do. And first, I want to give a shout out to our patrons who are supporting this podcast, keeping it going. I've said this before. I will never stop saying it. It means so much to me and to Moya and to everyone who helps make this show. So thank you to our Sunlike stars, Sharon Llewellyn, Finn, and Megan Moon. And thank you to our newest patrons, Jackie and Lada Bartova. You can support us, hear your name on this podcast, make it to our patron star chart, get this episode and every episode's research notes all by supporting us on Patreon for just about $1 per episode. Find the star chart, Patreon info, and everything else at our website, palebluepod.com, or by going right to patreon.com slash palebluepod. I am also so excited to tell you about Tell Me About It. Tell Me About It is a new game show podcast from Multitude all about proving that the things you like are actually interesting. Hosted by Adel Rafai from Hey Riddle Riddle and Hello from the Magic Tavern, along with Multitude's own Eric Silver. Adel plays an eccentric billionaire who has wrangled his audio butler, Eric, to prove that the single most interesting and coolest thing ever is the movie musical Grease. 
In every episode, a guest comes on and shares and defends their favorite thing through a series of absurd games and challenges. Moya and I have both been on it, and not to give anything away too early, but we did pretty well. I also have a very silly story about how my chorus teacher would always play the movie Grease for us, and she would only always play the first 45 minutes because then the bell would ring, and nobody ever told her to play the next 45 minutes. So I know the first 45 minutes pretty well. Anyway, Tell Me About It is out now. New episodes every other Thursday. Wherever you get your pods, I know you're going to love it. Do you want to learn more about science, math, AI technology? Just go to Brilliant.org. Whatever level you're at, Brilliant will help you master the skills you need. Brilliant is the best way to learn things like math and computer science interactively. There are thousands of lessons from foundational and advanced math to AI, data science, and more. And new lessons are added monthly. Even as a copywriter, I really need to know the ways to stay ahead as this industry is affected by things like AI. The skills I learned to build my career aren't exactly the ones I need now. And this is where Brilliant.org comes in. I'm a big believer in hands-on learning. I know that's how my brain works best, and Brilliant's visual hands-on approach is such an effective way to master the key concepts behind today's technology. Plus, it's perfect for busy people, with bite-sized lessons that break down important concepts into understandable parts, kind of like Pale Blue Pod. Try everything Brilliant has to offer for free for a full 30 days just by visiting brilliant.org slash palebluepod, or click on the link in our description. The first 200 signups will also get 20% off Brilliant's annual premium subscription. Again, that's brilliant.org slash palebluepod. So you did that postdoc for two years at UC Berkeley. And then from 1963 to 1968, he was an assistant professor at Harvard. Shout out to Harvard. Um, (laughs) A very unenthusiastic shout out to Harvard. Um, At the end of his assistant professorship there, he applied for tenure, uh, to be a tenured professor at Harvard. His tenure application was denied. (gasps) Because no secrets. Because because of the secrets. secrets. They were like, well. Um, Actually, kind of, kind of. Um, Maybe it is Sagan's mouth and his compulsion to communicate that keeps getting him in trouble because one of the reasons he thought his tenure application was denied was that he spent too much time doing science communication oh, uh, and too much, yeah, not enough time on his own research. So he left Harvard in 1968 and went to Cornell where he was a faculty member from 19... 19- Cor- Cornell had been, like, courting him for years, mm-hmm. wanting him to come to their astronomy department. He finally did in 1968. And there, in a smaller astronomy department, he was really able to thrive and uh, boom in his science communication work um, while still doing a lot of research. Um, so he was at Cornell from 1968 pretty much until he died in 1996. Throughout his career, he studied the atmosphere of Venus. He was one of the first to believe and say that Titan, one of the moons of Saturn, had liquid on its surface. Um, It's not liquid water. They have a lot of methane lakes, but he was still one of the first to say liquid. He hypothesized that Jupiter's Europa might have a water ocean underneath its surface. We talked about that in last week's episode. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he studied the seasonal variation in Mars's appearance. Uh, Over the course of a Martian year, it changes color a little bit, and that's because there are seasonal windstorms and sandstorms that will make Mars look different colors. Mm-hmm. from our point of view. Uh, I, I said that he worked on a lot of NASA planetary spacecraft missions, and he published hundreds of papers, hundreds of scientific papers. The most cited of them 
is the 1972 paper from the journal Science called Earth and Mars, Evolution of Atmospheres and Surface Temperatures. And that paper from 1972 has been cited 516 times. Whoa. I feel like I'm not familiar enough with papers to know how frequently they get cited. Um, not often. My most cited paper has been cited, like, I don't know, five yeah. Time. Five, maybe, maybe 10. Yeah. I haven't looked because it, it, like, it just never happens. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I also am not an active researcher anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd say 500 is Wild. Is, is definitely at the end uh, of the spectrum. Um, most papers can expect like a dozen, mm-hmm. maybe a couple dozen citations. If they're really impactful in their field, then they'll get a lot of citations. Yeah. That's rare. But yeah, he was he was an accomplished scientist and also an accomplished science communicator. Um, and he did both of those throughout his career. He was publishing pretty much up until his death. The last paper that he published uh, with him as an author was published posthumously in 1997. But he was doing work through Whoa. 1996 because he, you know, he was young. He didn't die from old age. He died from pneumonia. So it, it was like a, a, a surprise. Yeah. And, and he... He didn't, like, degrade in his ability to do work before he passed. Yeah. Uh, So I, as a science communicator, I was more excited to talk about his science communication work than about his research, although his research is very impressive. But he wrote hundreds of scientific papers. He wrote a bunch of articles for public consumption. He wrote books. He did TV appearances. Carl Sagan, before he died, especially um, from the 80s on, for the last, like, two decades of his life, he was a household science name. Mm-hmm. He was a regular guest on Johnny Carson's Tonight Show. That's so fun. Sagan is basically, he was doing what I what I want to be doing mm-hmm. um, in my life as a science communicator. And I'll be the Johnny Carson, Moya. There you go. Let's, <laughs> Corinne, let's start our own show. I think that maybe we should, and... And I almost just said, let's just make our own streaming platform. The world could use one more. <laughs> there aren't enough. Ever, that's what I hear everyone say. Everyone you know what? Says, there I just aren't enough streaming app. platforms. If I had another nine ninety nine a month charge, that would be great. <laughs> that would be ideal. Um, so I I have here a list of some of his like most notable science communication projects. A lot of them happened in the eighties. Uh, so in in nineteen eighty, he just got very busy Mm -hmm. it's almost like he he had that first stage as a hardcore researcher and he never really gave that up but in 1980 he like really burst onto the science communication scene so one of the first things uh that he did in 1980 actually he was developing and producing it in 1978 is the tv show cosmos Mm -hmm. i'm sure i know heard of it Uh, So in 1980, Carl Sagan co-wrote and solo narrated a 13-part documentary series for PBS. Um, It, at the time, until 1990, it was the most watched series in the history of public television. Wow. It's been seen by more than 500 million people in 60 countries around the world. It had an enormous reach and it was reprised uh, for for another round in like 2014, with someone who was not as great. <laughs> <laughs> I I I don't think I ever watched it on PBS. Like I saw it later in life. Well, mm. also like I wasn't I didn't exist. So yet <laughs> when right. it came out, but um, you're after this time. <laughs> I'm like 
I really think that public television is just the best. It really I'm is. thinking back, did you watch Arthur as a kid? I didn't have TV as a kid. Oh, right. Okay, Moya, we gotta watch Arthur one day. It's just the best <laughs> all show. All of it? We have to watch all of Arthur all of one it. day. Um, so I, as someone who is developing my own TV show right now, I'm very fascinated by budgets for TV yeah. and film projects. The budget, the production budget for Cosmos in 1980 was $6.3 million. And then they got another $2 million for marketing. That feels which, very big. That feels very big. For 1980 which is like, especially. Exactly. Yeah. And that's probably part of why it was the most watched series on public television until 1990 when something about the Civil War knocked it out of the water. But it was known for its visual effects. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a, a large chunk that's why. Of, of the budget. Yeah, because you would have these scenes where uh, Carl Sagan was like walking through space. Yep. And that's very easy to do these days, but it was but not then. difficult 40 years yeah. ago. Yeah. yeah. So um, it had a big budget and it was a big success. So good for them and good for PBS. The show covered topics in and around astronomy. I looked at the descriptions of the 13 episodes in the series, and I was actually pretty shocked by how much non-astronomy stuff there was. It made me feel like a, a type of kindred connection yeah. with Carl Sagan, because I often incorporate a lot of my folklore work mm-hmm. um, and expertise into my astronomy communication. And Sagan, as an interdisciplinary scientist with a background in genetics and like evolution and chemistry, he brought that to his astronomy communication. That's and I, great. I just really appreciate that. So the topics of Cosmos were in order, like the structure of the universe. And then the second episode uh, was evolution and genetics and oh. the origin of life. Okay. Sure, yeah, that makes sense. It's it's big you are space energy. Yes. Yes, yeah. it is. Yeah. Right? Like every everything is space. So like he could he could talk about whatever he wants. He of course it all fits. That's the <laughs> genius thesis. Where it's like actually everything can work on my show. Mm-hmm. And there's a reason he's the inspiration for this yeah. podcast's mm-hmm. name. Uh, the third episode was all about the celestial sphere and like the constellations and how the, the moon, earth, sun system works. Uh, then there was an episode on comets and asteroids, one on Mars, one on the outer solar system and the spacecraft that we send to study it, like Voyager, which he was involved with. Uh, There's an episode on light and space-time and faster-than-light travel, an episode on the life cycles of stars, one on the Big Bang and uh, cosmology and like how the universe changes over time, and then just throwing it in, an episode on the evolution of human intelligence, Um, then an episode on the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, the SETI Mm -hmm. uh, research that he was very involved in, Uh, and then an episode on um, barriers to first contact, where he he did talk about, like, the European colonizers coming in and making contact with Native Americans, so (gasps) I I can see the through line there, too. It was weighing on him all this time. Must have been. Um, You can see how so much of his interdisciplinary work was combined into Cosmos, and you can see like how he pulled it from from other projects that he was working on. Yeah, um, that makes me feel better about projects I have that are like kind of not nothing's happening with, but I feel like they can be incorporated into like a future project or like no yes. work is wasted really. It's just towards this larger 
project. I love it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he embodied that. Yeah. Um, and we, we can, too. We can continue his legacy in that way. What if our, it turns out, Pale Blue Pod is like episode for episode remake of this? <laughs> like, you just listed all the topics of his episodes, and it's like <laughs> Pluto in Grandma's living room. <laughs> <laughs> We're just reading the transcripts. Yeah. Um that would be so unethical, but also 100%. kind of hilarious. <laughs> also, we've we've now moved past 13 episodes. That's so, so. true. 22. Mm-hmm. 22. <laughs> um, this is our this is our T Swift episode. Yeah. The the show Cosmos won two Emmy awards and a Peabody award. Uh, it was quite successful. I'll talk about the Planetary Society next. Uh, so the Planetary Society is a nonprofit organization that is currently active. It's it's still around. The current CEO is Bill Nye. So, like, they're doing quite well. Heard of it. <laughs> uh, but it was founded by our good buddy Carl and two of his buddies, Bruce Murray and Louis Friedman, in 1980. He was very busy mm-hmm. in 1980. Yeah, that was a big year. Mm -hmm. The Planetary Society's mission was to empower the world's citizens to advance space science and exploration. And they started it to show that there was public interest in space because federal organizations like NASA weren't getting the appropriate funding from the government, um, in part because the government was like, but people aren't interested in space, which makes no sense because yeah. they literally went to the moon 11 years earlier. Yeah, yeah. That. I also think, like, uh, that's one thing you can... It's just not an argument. It's like, yeah, everybody does care about space. Like, that's yes. just like a one... We could all talk about space at a dinner party yes. and, like... <laughs> exactly. Um, but the government was like, nah, no one cares about that. Uh, so they weren't funding it. And then Carl and his buddies wanted to start this organization where public members, just like, people could join and show their support for space science. Uh, It was one of the fastest growing organizations or like membership organizations in the 1980s and now has more than 2 million members worldwide. Yeah. Well, I mean, Planetary Society is like the coolest name for a group to join. So (laughs) they had the marketing right. Yes. Um, They especially advocated for SETI research. Mm -hmm. Um, We did a whole episode on the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. So go listen to that if you want to know more about SETI or go join the Planetary Society as a member. (laughs) Um, So now that I'm talking about advocacy work, Carl Sagan was a good dude, it seemed, who advocated for some pretty cool things in a public way. So his work on Venus's atmosphere found that the greenhouse effect of having so much carbon in Venus's atmosphere produced those extremely high temperatures that could melt lead. Uh, so he he was studying that on Venus, but then he turned his attention and thinking to Earth and the greenhouse effect here, back in the 70s and 80s. And so he became an advocate for policies to stop climate change decades ago. Uh, He even testified to Congress in 1985 to explain what the greenhouse effect was, how it affects other planets, and how it could and, well, is and could affect Earth going forward. That video will be in the research notes, like he, uh, the video of him testifying to Congress. So join our Patreon and then you'll be able to see that video. You can see it if you don't join our Patreon. It's on YouTube. You just have to find it yourself. Quick access on the Patreon. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So he was a climate policy advocate, which is awesome. Love that for our boy Mm -hmm. Carl. Kyle. Not Kyle. (laughs) 
I love that for our boy, Carl. We're really close to them, so we get to call him Kyle. Um, he also advocated for nuclear disarmament after the Cold War, um, and yes. he hypothesized the drastic outcomes of a potential nuclear war. He was one of the authors of a report that coined the term nuclear winter, um, and he wrote two books about it. In 1984, which is just two years before the Chernobyl tragedy, mm-hmm. uh, he wrote a book called The Cold and the Dark, The World After Nuclear War. Uh, And then in 1990, he wrote another book, A Path Where No Man Thought, Nuclear Winter and the End of the Arms Race. And so he was a a very public proponent of disarming nuclear weapons. Uh, He got a lot of flack from parts of the scientific community for this, actually. Um, And in general, throughout his career, a lot of scientists didn't like that he was so public in his speculation about things. They thought that he was too willing to opine on subjects that science wasn't totally um, up to date on when he was doing his science communication. For example, this nuclear winter thing, there were scientists who, but also those scientists were like involved in nuclear research, so they were biased, Uh, but there were were several scientists who claimed that um, he was talking about nuclear fallout without knowing what he was what he was talking about. But he was literally advised, this is why I wanted to bring it up earlier, one of his research advisors was a scientist, a physicist who worked on nuclear reactions. Yeah, I mean... This is not new to him. He was working on nuclear stuff on the moon, so... Mm -hmm. Yeah, not new to him. So those are some of the the things that he publicly advocated for. Of course, he was also a public advocate for science literacy, um, which is a large part of why he did this science communication work. Um, but he he wrote a lot of books. He wrote so many books, 20, spanning wow. lots of genres. So in nonfiction, his first nonfiction book was published in 1977, and it used his background in genetics and evolution to talk about the evolution of human intelligence, and it was called Dragons of Eden, which is a kick-ass name. That is a good a name. Book. Yeah. Um, so that's his first nonfiction book. It, it won him a lot of awards. And, oh, the... Uh, Howard Yori guy that you mm-hmm. that you mentioned before as one of his like undergraduate advisors. Howard Yori was one of the people who wrote a letter to Harvard saying he shouldn't get tenure there because uh, Yuri did not like his, Sagan's communication <gasps> work. He was one of the dropped. people. I know, right? He's one of the people who was like, no, Sagan spends too much time talking about science. He's getting famous by talking about other people's work. He sh- he does not deserve tenureship at Harvard. That is um, so rude and stupid. It is extremely rude. But after Sagan published Dragons of Eden, he got a note from Howard Urey saying something like, oh, I really enjoyed this book. I'm actually surprised that you know this much about this topic. Um, you are a man of many talents. Okay. Maybe <laughs> that's an apology. Maybe. That is such a neck. I know. If right? someone said that to me, I would be pissed. <laughs> that would be because he, Sagan studied genetics and evolution right. and the origins of life in, in school, in undergrad. He just didn't then go to get his PhD in it. So this would be like if one of my undergrad mentors bad-mouthed me to any job that I applied to and then 20 years later sent me a note congratulating me on the mythology book that I wrote. That is so (laughs) 
Rude. <laughs> so rude. Um, he didn't just do nonfiction, though. He also dabbled in Ooh. science fiction. In 1985, he wrote Contact, which is a hard science fiction novel based around the idea of first contact with an alien species. It hit the bestseller charts. It did really well, especially as a fiction book written by a scientist, but he was super popular by then, so of course. Um, this is and what, it was the adapted. Movie? It was adapted, okay, it was a, yes. Yes, then adapted into the movie with Jodie Foster and Matthew McConaughey in 1997. And then he went, he went back to nonfiction, and one of his last books that he published was in 1994. It was called Pale Blue Dot, A Vision of the Human Future in Space. I sounds familiar. Sounds familiar. Um, yes, that is that's where we get the name of this podcast. Well, actually, yeah. I feel like when we were thinking about that when you because you came up with the name, Corinne. I imagine it was about the quote uh, of how we're like that pale blue dot. He said that quote about a picture that Voyager took of of the Earth from very far away. Yeah, that I feel Mm -hmm. like that quote is much more famous than this book. And we were doing a lot of brainstorming (laughs) about names for this. And that mm-hmm. one stuck. It did. As soon as you said it, I was like, oh, my God, yes. Um, I remember I emailed it to you like two minutes before we were about to hop on a call to like f- brainstorm our name. And I was like, there it is. <laughs> there it is. Um, yeah. Listeners, this show was almost called We're So Tiny. We're, which is true. Yeah. But Pale Blue Pod is so much better. Pale Blue Pod colon a vision of the human <laughs> tininess. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for picking up on the colon pattern. <laughs> That's how that's how so much of uh, scientific publishing is named, and uh, it gives me a little a little burst of joy every time I see that colon. Sagan won way too many awards for us to list here, but I will go over some of the highlights. Um, and I'll say again that a lot of his colleagues, including some of his undergrad advisors like Howard Urey, were not pleased with his science communication work, but he was beloved by the public. And so he got a lot of awards. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them was in 1977, the NASA Distinguished Public Service Medal for his work in communicating science to the public and getting the public excited about specifically space research. He also, for a very similar reason, in 1994, won the National Academy of Sciences Public Welfare Medal because he improved public welfare through his science communication work. He won a Pulitzer Prize. Pulitzer? I never know what it is. I've said Pulitzer. Pulitzer. Okay. He won a Pulitzer Prize like for general nonfiction. Uh, two. He won two. One uh, in general nonfiction for his book, The Dragons of Eden, that first book that he published. Um, and then another for Cosmos, A Personal mm-hmm. Voyage. You can win a Pulitzer for a, for a show. That's so fun. I did. I think I've said this on the pod. When my book came out, I mailed it to win a Pulitzer. You like mail five copies to Columbia or something. And I was like, I can't, I I gotta get in the running. You gotta. You can't win if you don't enter the race. That's a, that's a very good point. You, you miss a hundred percent of the The shots shots you you don't don't take. Exactly. Carl Sagan said that. Carl. (laughs) No, he didn't. Allegedly. Allegedly. Uh, You will get that joke if you are very online. Um, He won the Humanist of the Year Award. Wow, that's a big one. I know, right? From like the American Humanist Association. It just feels like a lot of pressure. It does. Um, in 1981, after Cosmos came out mm-hmm. and he like rocked the science communication scene, mm-hmm. um, he won three Hugo Awards. 
Hugo Awards are for like science fiction and fantasy. Yeah. He won three of them. Uh, one was for the Cosmos show. Okay. One was for the accompanying Cosmos book, and one was for Contact, which is the only actual yeah, science, the actual fiction, science that fiction that he did. That's really funny. Um, there are so many others that he won throughout his life, and after he died, he was awarded several posthumous awards. But there are also awards named after him. Uh, so the American Astronomical Society gives out every single year the Carl Sagan Medal for Excellence in Public Communication in Planetary Science. It's a mouthful. And you know that if Carl Sagan were still alive, that's not what he would have called his medal. That is not an eloquent enough name for a Carl Sagan medal. I think you're completely Mm -hmm. right. But it exists and it's awarded every year. One year I'm going to win it. (laughs) Yes, you are. Thank you. Um, those, though, that's that's Carl Sagan. Um, and I feel like the the best way to close out this sh- episode is for us to say some of his best quotes, or at least some of the some of his quotes that resonated the most with us. Yeah, I I love that. Mm-hmm. So would you uh, like to go first? Yeah, sure. Okay. The universe seems neither benign nor hostile, merely indifferent. Oh, I like that. And I love that. I love not assigning, like, um, like my husband and I talk a lot about um, people who are like, I feel so blessed. I feel so blessed that I have. And it's often, like, very rich people who say this. And, like, no mm-hmm. offense in any way to a spiritual person. But I'm like, I think a lot of it is we're not counting on all the luck that has contributed to this. So I love an indifferent baseline of, like, it's not Ooh. working for you or against you. It is just here. It just is. That's nice. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Uh, this is this is my longest one. At the heart of science is an essential balance between two seemingly contradictory attitudes and openness to new ideas, no matter how bizarre or counterintuitive they may be, and the most ruthless skeptical scrutiny of all ideas, old and new. This is how deep truths are winnowed from deep nonsense. Um, so this goes back to that quote that you pulled about his, what he got from his parents, Mm -hmm. that he got um, skepticism from one and awe or wonder Mm -hmm. from the other. Um, Because that that really is what you need to do science. And it is hard to keep both of them in your mind at once, to be so open to all of the the mystery, but so rigorous in uh, making sure that everything you you say and find is the truth. Yes, yes. It's a hard balance to strike. I think we can get, I think there are, that's a trap a lot of people can fall in of like, you can get skeptical about something, but then in doing your own like quote unquote research or like (laughs) wonder about it, it's not quite, you're not skeptical Mm -hmm. enough about that either. And he really nailed the balance. Yes, he did. He nailed the balance and he nailed the talking about the balance. Yes. This is something I had not seen this quote before. And this is something that I've been thinking or like trying, trying to articulate for a long time, but hadn't. And of course, of of course he already did. did. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, a quote I love is, the boundary between space and the Earth is purely arbitrary, and I'll probably always be interested in this planet. It's my favorite. What an appropriate quote for this podcast. Big you are space energy. (laughs) B-Y-U-A-S-E. Big yas energy. Y-U-A-S-E. Amazing. My second is... It is the responsibility of scientists never 
to suppress knowledge. No matter how awkward that knowledge is, no matter how it may bother those in power, we are not smart enough to decide which pieces of knowledge are permissible and which are not. Which is why... Love that. (laughs) It makes sense to me that he would leak all those government secrets. Yes. He was like, no way. Yeah. He was like, I'm I'm not... Yes. Like the U.S. government is not smart enough to decide what information is and is not useful for the public. Yeah, I love that. (laughs) What a rebel. Tell me more about the nuclear war on the moon. Right? (laughs) Please. Actually, actually, please do. Do tell me. Yeah. (laughs) About the nuclear war on the moon. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, My last quote is, again, big yes energy. It's been said that astronomy is a humbling and I might add a character building experience. It feels like you are you're so t- or we're so tiny of like it's humbling and it's it's a good reminder of our place in the universe. It is. Yeah. It is. Uh my my last quote also um I think has big we're so tiny energy. For small creatures such as we, the vastness is bearable only through love. Aww. And this is from the book Contact and uh it's probably a scene where the main character is talking to another character who's a religious figure. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. I've never read the book, so I'm not sure how it compares to the movie. But mm-hmm. in the movie, uh, Jodie Foster plays a scientist and Matthew McConaughey plays like a pastor or whatever. And so they they hit, they hit butt heads over, over the science versus religion thing. So I know that it's from that book and probably has that context to it. But for me, when I read this quote, I think about the reason that we started this podcast in the first place and how a lot of people get overwhelmed and intimidated by the vastness of the universe. Mm -hmm. I have never felt that intimidation when I think about how tiny we are. And I know with numbers and science how tiny we are. And I think the reason that I have never reached that point of overwhelm is because I love the universe yeah. and because I love how much there is to it and I love that there are so many opportunities for other beings that aren't us to like get stuff right like there's yeah. there's just so much optimism for me when I think about how vast the universe is and that fills me with love yeah for everything oh I love that I feel like there's a lot yeah. of wonder there too like I think wonder mm. includes love so sweet yeah, that's that's Carl Sagan. I am so happy that he lived, that he did his work, mm-hmm. and that we uh, were able to pay respect to him yeah. uh, in this episode, finally. I'm so glad we did this up. Well, with that, yeah. listeners, I hope you take skepticism and wonder into the rest of your day, and remember that you are space. Yeah, you are. Pale Blue Pod was created by Moya McTeer and Corinne Caputo with help from the Multitude Productions team. Our theme music is by Evan Johnston and our cover art is by Shay McMullen. Our audio editing is handled by the incomparable Misha Stanton. Stay in touch with us and the universe by following at Pale Blue Pod on Twitter and Instagram. Or check out our website, palebluepod.com. We're a member of Multitude, an independent podcast collective and production studio. If you like Pale Blue Pod, you will love the other shows that live on our website at multitude.productions. 
If you want to support Pale Blue Pod financially, join our community over at patreon.com slash palebluepod. For just about $1 per episode, you get a shout out on one of our shows and access to director's commentary for each episode. The very best way, though, to help Pale Blue Pod grow is to share it with your friends. So send this episode, this link, to one person who you think will like it, and we will appreciate you for forever. Thanks for listening to Pale Blue Pod. You'll hear us again next week. Bye.